The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you live from the Fletch Azul podcast studio in Houston, Texas. I am joined, as usual, with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. Hello, Dan. Hello, hello. How are you, sir? I am doing well. Happy to be here. Happy. So it is early July. It is 250 degrees outside. Thank you for making it to Houston for the podcast. Well, Houston is my home, so... You haven't left for I, the summer I at have all? Not, I have not left. In fact, I was thinking about this intro conversation, and you just told me that you've been in Mykonos. Yes. Which you can tell us about later. And I've been in Houston in the midst of this meltdown in oil prices and energy stocks and so I feel like you've been in heaven and I've been in hell and I frankly wish it was the other way around but here we are well you know I really I guess I did kind of set myself up for this amazing intro just this is the humble brag of that I get to drop that I've been in Mykonos and it was I didn't realize that I was made for Mykonos but I am made to sit on a beach in the Mediterranean and eat fruit and it's it's the it's where I belong. I didn't know this, but it is. The unspoken question, of course, is isn't Mykonos like the naked island where you're, you're now? There, we did notice that there's a lot of that. Uh, my wife and I went. Ah, yeah, yes, you just happened to notice. Well, yes. so there's there's two sides to every beach that you can go to. You can go to the naked side, or you can go to the clothed side. Uh, we stayed on the clothed side, um, and. I am not in shape enough to go to the naked side. There is there's some very in shape people from around the world that want to go to that. Rumor side. has it, no, they're there. <laughs> you can they're there for sure. But uh, yeah, it was just a great trip. I got out of the Houston for a little bit. Uh, again, it was kind of an accident, but we enjoyed ourselves. We're back in Houston. It's very very hot. Yesterday was a record heat day. I have a feeling we're going to break those left and right. And you mentioned the meltdown in oil and gas. We're still above a hundred though. We are, which is the irony, which is it feels terrible and it's actually quite good. So Yeah, does it feel terrible? Because, again, I've been eating watermelon. Yeah, you've been on vacation while everybody's freaked out. And so uh, oil was down maybe 15 18% at its worst, but energy stocks are down 30-plus. And so notwithstanding still the best group in the market, it's been a it's been one of these nail biters where when something's falling, everybody worries it's going to keep falling. And so there's been a lot of a lot of angst in the market. Um, Are you getting phone call after phone call right now? People uh, asking? It's just um, some, you know, folks calling saying, what do we do? And 
you see it in social media. You see it in just conversations with folks like, oh, and, and it's happening at a time that that, you know, the overall market is worried about the economy and a recession yeah. and we've had high gasoline prices. And so, you know, there's just this yin and yang of very tight energy fundamentals and potentially very weak macroeconomic fundamentals and which is going to win and what's money flow and trading behavior versus investment behavior. And these things are not easy to figure out in the thick of the moment. Before we get to the guest here that we're going to make sit for a little bit longer here, you know, we've mentioned, do you still have your Land Cruiser? Uh, I do. Okay. I still have mine. I, I let it get to all the way to E the other day. I don't ever let it get that, but I did. Mm-hmm. Had to fill that up at 470 okay. a gallon. Yep. 100 that, bucks. Oh, well over $100. I could, yep. I just couldn't believe it. I, I cannot believe how high gas is. And I'm not really shocked by things like this, but gas is really high. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And you're a, you're a, I'm assuming, relatively well-off guy. I mean, you've got a, a, a great shirt and you go to Mykonos, <laughs> so you can afford to put $100 worth of That's gas in the car. That's what I told my wife. And you're still paying attention, I right? told That's my wife, the thing. I said, you know, if I'm this, I guess, appalled, I don't know what the right Anxious. word is, shocked. Yeah. I was shocked mm-hmm. by because I put an extra tank on mine. So I actually have Ooh. 32 and a half gallons on that because they get such bad gas mileage. So it was $150 to yeah. fill that thing up. And it really shocked me how high gas is. I can't imagine what, I see why people are, are starting to lose their minds. Mm-hmm. You know, when you watch the nightly news, how they talk about gas is just. It's the real deal. Man. Yeah. It's the real deal. There's a, there's a certain point at which doesn't matter. I mean, you can afford it, but, but you're paying attention. Yes. It's like, wow, this is painful. And it's really painful to folks who don't make, you know, who make minimum wage. Right. Right. It's really painful. Yeah. Do you, do you, I go to that? Do I go there today? Do I literally drive my car today? Yeah. I mean, yeah. those, I think those kinds of decisions have been being made. And, and that's the reason you see the president on, you know, the news conferences saying we got to do something about this because it's, it's front of mind. Front of, exactly. And, and, and it typically is not front of mind. Well, I drove a golf cart the whole time in Mykonos, so no, you're right. It there was you go. A different story over there. There you go. Well, let's let's launch into yes, on that our note. our podcast, and we are joined by Raj and Raj. I, I joked with you that I was going. I had broke into sweat pronouncing your your last name. I always do. Mahagalkar. There you go. All right. So um, anytime you have more than two or three syllables in a last name, I, I'm panicked in, in a podcast setting, but I think I survived it. Anyway, Raj, welcome. Uh, CFO of Grid United and uh, a person with a really fascinating background as we're going to explore today. And so you and I have gotten to know each other over the last year and change. And um, every time I talk to you, I feel like I come away smarter, learn something and uh, which makes you a perfect guest, hopefully, for our podcast. So I, I'm excited. We got a phone call from Rachel Race today. She said to tell you hello. So awesome. She said we we're going to enjoy this one thoroughly, and um, you know I'm looking forward to it as well. There's a lot of there's a lot in your background that says there's there's not just one or two topics we can talk about. You've got uh, you know there's entrepreneurial, and you when we were kind of doing some stuff off camera. You, you were talking about how you've done some bigger business and then, you know, entrepreneurial uh, uh, attempts so far. How, I mean, what is that, 
what is the difference between the two in your career? How do they feel to you, the difference? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always trying to find the, the right adventure. But by the way, I should say it's exciting to be here. Yeah. Sorry, always. I jumped right in. No, no, no. Yeah, like I always love catching up with, with Dan and super uh, glad to be able to spend a little time with you guys. So, Have you ever done a uh, podcast before? I have not, no. It's first, Ooh, first, this is, first we're very podcast. good at this. So you're going to love this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I, for me, it's always been, again, trying to find that adventure. And sometimes that can work in a existing organization. And sometimes uh, trying to create that from scratch is a, a good way to get at it. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of how I've thought about it. And, you know, I'm happy to rewind the clock back and, and go through that. Yeah, um, I was going to say, Raj, uh, maybe, maybe step us back. Uh, where were you born? Where'd you go to school? I mean, kind of give us your resume a little bit so we can, we can kind of poke around in the, in the corners. Okay. Yeah, sure. So, and maybe I'll go, I'll go way, way back. My, my parents came to the U S from India in the seventies. Okay. Uh, so they were immigrants and, you know, frankly, I was super lucky to be born here, uh, here in Houston, Texas, 713, as we just heard is coming up, uh, as, as in July 13th, but, um, I grew up here in, in Houston and Sugarland, Texas. I went to Rice University, uh, studied economics there, actually tried it, tried to do engineering and, uh, ended up doing Failed economics. engineer. Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just, uh, hung around a lot. My uh, roommates who were doing it, but, um, ended up doing economics and loved it. Um, took most of the classes the school had in that area. Um, got pretty close with a lot of the professors in that area. Um, and I really came in, came out wanting to learn more about how economies work and markets work. Uh, and that led me to, to be lucky to join Goldman here in Houston. Uh, so I was in their investment banking group. Uh, and at that time, this was 2008. Uh, so, you know, financial crisis time. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, it was, it was awesome. It was, you know, what we now call traditional energy with a smattering of, uh, renewables, uh, that it was very early in those days, uh, for, for a large bank, it was not a large sector that could, uh, get a lot of coverage. Um, so primarily traditional energy. Um, but I mean, it, it was fascinating. I was just reflecting like there, were, there were days we didn't know necessarily if we'd be around or our clients would be around the next day because as I'm sure, you know, you've had experiences, you know, that the day we're working on a project, someone's stock might drop 20% in mm -hmm. a day. Yeah. And I mean, huge ours or theirs or their counterparty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was wild. Yeah. Um, and it was also around the time of, uh, the early parts of the gas shale revolution. So the first part of the shale revolution, um, which ties in, I think to a lot of what we're, we're going to talk about, but, um, so worked on some of the joint ventures that got a lot of capital from around the world into these shale plays. Um, and actually reflecting back, it's interesting because, you know, the, the shale revolution took tons of capital and tons of risk. And a lot of that capital made money and a lot of that capital lost money. Mm -hmm. um, but the U.S. got global oil prices for a while down and domestic U.S. gas prices down, right? And so um, but you know, that, that was really interesting coming out of college. Let me ask you yeah. a question about that before yeah. you talk, you know, before you lay out kind of the rest of your career. Yeah. So you talked about, um, you talked about being really interested in economics and yeah. wanting to learn more. <clears throat> and so you went to work in investment banking at Goldman. So 
one of the ways people think about investment bankers is just these aggressive, you know, oh, I'm going to win and succeed. So were you this massively motivated, driven to succeed guy? Or did you say, and, and therefore Goldman's the place I want to go because that's where winners go? Or was it, I think I'm really going to learn a lot about how markets work. And so that's why I want to go to Goldman. I'm, I'm just, you know, there's a, yeah. there's a little bit of a difference between those two. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's a really good question. It's probably hard to say. I mean, I, I, my, my interest in going was the latter. Like I want to learn how markets work. And I remember like in my internship, the, the senior guys would look at pages of numbers and interpret it like a book. And I had no idea what they were getting out of these pages. And I was like, man, I want to figure out like, what what's so interesting about yep. this page with just numbers and mm -hmm. like what are they taking away and how is this driving how you think about where you're going to raise capital from and from who and how and how it's priced and all that so for me it was this intellectual interest okay. um and you know there was this big unknown i got had to figure out like you know how do these guys uh figure all this out and mm -hmm. know, know what to advise companies to do yeah okay thanks so yeah. so we're going to put you in the intellectually curious but never really figures it out. Kind of, uh, right? okay. just co yeah. Constantly, constantly lost. <laughs> looking, yeah, looking for the next question. Um, great. Okay, so you do Goldman for a little while. Did Goldman and here, and then within Goldman, so uh, actually because of the financial crisis, Goldman and most banks became bank holding companies. Mm -hmm. Meaning, long story short, they were able to get access to the Fed window for liquidity purposes, but they had to change their banking categorization, and along with that comes all kinds of other stipulations. And part of that was uh, Goldman now is subject to the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, which um, made Goldman have to invest a certain amount of its assets in the communities in which it's tax domiciled, which is New York and Utah. But uh, So I ended up joining a group within Goldman called the Urban Investment Group, which invests uh, uh, equity in uh, primarily real estate, but real estate and other community impact uh, endeavors. Um, and it ended up being, yeah, they deployed kind of five to eight times that year going forward what they used to have to because of uh, becoming a bank holding company. Mm -hmm. um, and most of what we did was low-income low housing tax credits or other types of tax credits for real estate. Uh, and it was really interesting just learning how that worked. And my kind of takeaway there was this is a great return for the firm or anyone who has tax liability. Um, uh, but I decided I wanted to challenge myself with kind of less structured, more corporate equity investing. Um, and so from Goldman, I went to a private equity firm called Silver Lake, uh, and I was moving from New York to California. Um, and Silver Lake folks might know of as a technology private equity firm, mm -hmm. um, but I actually joined um, a, a firm called Silver Lake Craftwork, which was a strategy within Silver Lake focused on what we now call the energy transition. Uh, but really looking at investing in tech-enabled energy companies. Um, and and at that time, there was a little bit, what people might call clean tech 1.0 uh, venture community. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and this we would were, have been at that time is 2012. 2012, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, That's 10 years ago for those of you counting at home. <laughs> so a decade ago, you're sort of at the front end of some of this clean tech stuff. Exactly. And and even at that time, uh, the experience for clean tech had not been great. And so our, our whole thesis was there have there has been a lot of roadkill, but there are some gems through the venture investments that have been done. And we really want to take 
those gems and provide later stage growth capital or kind of pre-IPO capital uh, to help these companies scale for the future. So the, so the whole thesis really was, you know, in the context of what was not the best experience for that um, that sector, really helped the the few gems grow. Um, and you know, we looked at a handful of sectors, and it was a really awesome team. Uh, I, I think you know, we we I'm still in touch with pretty much the whole group of ten of us, and we were probably ten years too early on that. Hmm. You know, um, um, so anyway, so. Uh, after Silver Lake, my, my wife got her medical residency back here home in Houston, um, and uh, I decided to leave California, come back to Houston. Um, at that time, had been thinking about uh, doing some growth equity entrepreneurial stuff uh, in East Africa with, with a close buddy of mine from Rice and Goldman, and we had started and run a nonprofit together. Um, so we ended up trying to launch a growth equity platform uh, in East Africa, um, and that's really kind of Nairobi, Kenya. And there were, there were three of us. Um, we looked at a couple hundred companies, various sectors. Um, we we liked two, which is not a lot compared to two hundred. Uh-huh. Um, and so we we decided, you know, as who we were, we weren't finding the type of risk reward we we were hoping to find. Uh, so risk reward like fifty baggers, uh, or ten I mean, baggers. Even even well, so I'd say like three to six x okay. baggers, because um, we weren't venture. Yeah. Um, but even that to price those right in the context of that environment um, wasn't easy. Yeah. Geopolitical risk, country risk, all of the things that. Yeah. One thinks of when one thinks of investing in Africa. Exactly, and and look, I, you know, I still absolutely love that region, and the management teams out there that we got to know are phenomenal. And there's, and you think about a country with like five or six percent growth on a GDP basis, that's pretty high. And there are certain sectors that are driving that growth, and the companies within those sectors. So there's some really great innovation and growth happening. Um, but really, as an American, getting access to that the right way. Um, what wasn't as easy as we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there were a lot of Europeans, um, Chinese, a- Indians that were uh, closer to that ecosystem. And, you know, like a big lesson learned, we were all Americans and, you know, kind of parachuting in, you know, there is a element of uh, value of being local and all that, you know, I think, I think it took us time to realize, mm-hmm. you know, we, we didn't have that. Yeah. Um, so then after that, decided, well, I should actually be at home because I left California to be at home and, um, uh, you know, I shouldn't be on the road the whole time. Uh, so that's I, so I joined Riverstone um, around uh, 2015. And um, <clears throat> I, was, I was here in their Houston office. Where, uh, Riverstone is a energy private equity firm. Um, and so there spent a lot of time uh, investing in and managing companies in the oil and gas space. Uh, what we, I guess, now call the traditional power space. Um, And then the last uh, few years there, both uh, managing those existing traditional energy companies and investments and also helping to develop some of the decarbonization strategies um, as I think most asset managers are now moving to have some type of strategy. So you were there from 15 to 21? Yeah, that's right. In what you call or what we call traditional oil and gas or managing traditional? Uh, so it was a mix. So traditional, uh, traditional energy, so oil and gas and power. Yeah. Um, and also um, decarbonization related investments. Because the reason I'm asking, yeah. that's a tricky time. 
traditional oil and gas, 15, oh, yeah. 16, you know, maybe you had a good 12-month period in there, maybe. Better than 15 anyway. No, yeah. I mean, oil, Thanksgiving 2014, oil fell off a cliff, yeah. right? So, um, That's when I closed on my uh, house. I know exactly. What right. <clears throat> no, so yeah, it was uh, uh, quite the volatility roller coaster ride y'all referenced earlier, yeah. you know, but um, both in, I mean, and frankly, power markets are even more volatile than, than uh, oil and gas. Over typically. that same period? Um, in different markets, it's going to be different, but there have been some huge vol moments in you know, really like thinking about the competitive markets are so cut and, and how do you East. how do you view that last six year period then as I mean, just full of growth and full of ups downs. I mean, I know I mean, I, I can kind of place my last six years in a traditional manufacturing sense. But what do you how do you view that last six years? Yeah. So I, I guess I'll, there's kind of a micro and a macro and I'll start with the micro, which is I got to work with and develop relationships with some absolutely amazing people. So management teams uh, and, and colleagues and that are just the incredible at what they do, like have created incredible companies either in that time or in their prior lives uh, and helping other people uh, or management teams do that through mentorship or being part of the management team. So just being able to interact with best in class, oil and gas power, renewable, uh, folks was just awesome. It was just like, you know, amazing to be a part of all that. Um, you know, I think on the macro, it, it, you know, the energy in transition, I think has been happening economically, even if perhaps uh, more publicly, it's only more recent where you saw gas prices really come down and coal plants are, have been getting shut down really because of that, right? So you saw this switching from coal to gas. Um, we saw, you know, nuclear plants starting to come under economic pressure. They're starting to slowly potentially shut down. And what does that do to markets as you lose baseload production? So, you know, I, I think just on the macro scale, both on the hydrocarbon and the electricity side, there was a lot of change starting to happen. And, you know, some of that, you know, w we had to deal with upfront with um, over levered companies mm -hmm. or windfalls and other situations. if. You know, you were on the side of a trade that uh, on a commodity price that went up, uh, thinking, uh, having to really think about the types of leverage folks might put on things, the liquidity they have, their hedging strategy. And, and this was true on either an oil and gas company or a power company. Um, so I think it was a phenomenal time to just be able to soak that in and uh, try to figure out how to navigate those situations. So <clears throat> maybe you have figured out how to navigate those situations, but but we take a step back and think about energy transition in general tell us i mean you've you're living it you've lived it you've worked it tell us a little bit about i mean how do you think this energy transition is going to play out i mean give us a roadmap or at least kind of your thought on the roadmap yeah um <clears throat> well one I, I have no idea but i think what's what's fascinating is I, th I think finally, for the first time ever, there's capital that has that is entering the space at huge pace, and I think that's really important. Like, if if we think about technology, they have access to capital. The Shell Revolution had access to capital, and you couldn't predict in any of these other areas which company or which specific technology or pathway to a technology might win. But there, you know, the investment landscape 
was able to lean into that and there are enough winners in the takes a lot of money to get there right and so to me you know i think i think there's tons of pathways that could lead us to wherever we're going do do you Uh, think do you think net zero is the easiest way to think about where we're going is it decarbonization or is it something else that's really kind of where we're going yeah so the yeah it's a great question the way i think about it is what should we be doing now to maximize our near-term and long-term ability efficiently when i say efficiently i mean economically or thinking about the capital it Mm -hmm. takes um and so you know i I don't know that putting in a date and an and a number like net zero Mm -hmm. and then hitting a ai model with the millions of scenarios you know and looking for the right one like I don't know if that necessarily would mean that's the most efficient way. Like if the date was five years earlier or later, you'd have a different result, right? Mm-hmm. And if your assumptions on battery costs and solar panel costs were different, you'd have a different result and even hydrocarbon costs. So to, to me, the way, I, I've, the way I've tried to frame it in my head and, and I'm still trying to figure it out is what are the things we know that are economic to do today and beneficial to do today? Um, what are the most scaled things or like things that have the largest CO2 equivalent impact or um, environmental impact? Uh, and are we making sure we're doing those? And that answer itself is not clear. I think there's a lot of things that ta- do not take technology risk, uh, perhaps might take some business model innovation or commercial risk, um, but we're just not doing because we're not necessarily set up as a uh, market to go after those things. And, and so to me, like if it's at scale, I think that's a great, a great thing that the country should be doing and perhaps other countries as well. Um, and, and really zooming out, like I, I, another kind of framework that I try to overlay on it is, is the goal to make money or is the goal to have impact? Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is I think there are a lot of investments that will be made that will be good, uh, that have relatively little impact. Uh, there are probably a lot of investments that just won't work. And then there are investments that could have large impact, um, but the risk associated with those is unknown today. So it would be thought of by an investor to be relatively large. And so I think it depends what hat one is wearing. Are you wearing an investor hat or a policy hat as you know a government official? Uh, and, and what's kind of your goal. Um, and, and so kind of my advice might be different to a fund manager versus a, you know, a benevolent dictator, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, There's a lot there. Um, you said what I, I'm going to repeat it because I thought it was, I think it's right. And then you got to tell us wh- what it is. Are they economic and beneficial? So we, we should be doing things that are economic and beneficial and things that are scaled or can be sizable. Yep. What what are economic and beneficial things and what are scaled things? What what are yeah. these things we should be doing? Yeah. So, uh you know, like so some some maybe a little bit of stats, but um you know, about two thirds of the wind and solar in this country exist where only about one third of the people live and, and effectively vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um I, I and so you know I think there's a question of solar costs have come down, wind costs have come down, battery costs are still high, but and, and short duration, but those 
will probably improve. How, how do we think about making use of, and by the way, America is really lucky to have abundant solar and wind and, and, and other resources and other situations, um, as well as oil and gas and, you know, yeah. look at Europe that it's it's a very different story. So 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 I think in some ways we have a high class problem to solve which is how do we efficiently unlock these resources? We have a solvable problem maybe. Yes. Yeah. yeah largely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I and I think you know p- part of that is um you know us having to make make choices though, right? And and I I do think by the way it's also important to fully realize like as as gas has really taken out coal on the power side, it has devastated communities, right? And, and there are communities that are, you know, a coal plant can employ 100 to 200 people or more. And there's, if there's a mine, mine mouth, they employ more people. And that's the livelihood of a town sometimes, right? And, and in, you know, the worlds that we've overlapped in on shale booms, you have similar dynamics in oil fields. And so I, I think there's a it has to be a combined solution and how do you think about or how does the country think about this transition and i think it's a multi-decade transition i think he answered your question about Goldman Sachs right away didn't he i mean this is this is part two which one did he want to go do it's he's got the right idea of yeah of how to look at these problems big things yeah Yeah. so i I cut uh, you off mid-answer because it was multi you said multi-decade multi-decade yeah yeah so um yeah. So, so another thing kind of, it goes to what's a good investment versus a good initiative for a country. But, you know, if we could do asset light software investments as a country, that'd be awesome. If we can make an app to be decarbed, that would be great. But unfortunately we have to build tons of infrastructure, transport, power, hydrocarbons, and that takes decades to build, plan, raise the capital around and people to operate and the skill sets of people to operate. Um, and so, you know, it, it kind of goes to, we need to be figured, we, I, I think we need to figure out how do we get the right resources allocated to this massive problem, right? And, and, it, and again, as you said, and it, it's an opportunity because we have the resources and, and it's, it, it's hard to like conceptualize how lucky we are to have the resources. Um, uh, so, so I, yeah, so I, so I think it, I think it is solvable. I think it's going to be hopefully for Houston, an awesome economic opportunity for the next 50 years, um, which, which I'd love to come back to if we have time. Um, but we, we have to, we have to allow ourselves to allocate those resources appropriately. And what I'm excited about, I do think the capital markets are dedicated to this, you know, and, and, and so. We're gonna, who knows if we're going to be in a recession or what interest rates are going to be and what's the impact of that. But historically, clean tech has hit walls and not really had capital formation take it through. You know, I think in this sense, my hope is there's an energy solution where we think about capital for various types of energy on all sides, but that capital formation has got to stay and go through whatever's going to come over the next five years and then get us through the next... 50 years of transition. So to me, that's what's really exciting from the private market side. So you think that this go round, the market isn't going to sort of lose steam and back away. It is the money is going to be there, you know, pushing ahead with whatever the technology is, wind, solar, 
nuke, whatever we think it's going to be. Yeah. So, so, um, so definitely generally I do think so. So okay. the Larry Finks of the world have made commitments, you know, it's Larry po- Fink, BlackRock. Yeah. BlackRock yeah. who uh, probably two or three years, years ago wrote a letter and now like kind of a public letter on the topic and many large asset managers globally have done so as well. So folks who control and influence, you know, trillions of dollars of capital are dedicated to this energy and transition now. Right. Um, that hasn't been the case before. Now, time will tell if all sectors get hit. You know, this week's been tough on energy, but if in over quarters, if sectors get hit, um, does that resolve stay there? Um, but my hope and my, if, you know, my guess is that this time it does. Uh, and it doesn't need to be, and it kind of goes back to what's scalable and economic today, it doesn't need to be capital just taking high flyers. If the capital can just bet on what we know how to do and what we know uh, the economics of today, we will be far into the energy transition mm-hmm. in, in my view. And, and so that's where I get really excited, yeah. really unlocking that huge amounts of energy that we have that is lower carbon, uh, even thinking about existing nukes. Um, you know, that addressing things like that gets a lot of the issue um, mm-hmm. addressed. When when I asked you to talk about energy transition, you know, your your initial comments kind of came toward the power markets. And so is that because it's scalable, it's big, and, and therefore it's it's an opportunity? Is that kind of the biggest disruption that you see? I know you I know you think the the you know, kind of the utility business is interesting or the power business is interesting. Talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah. I, so, in I, short answer is yes. I, I think, I think elect, the electricity markets and the grid is going to be one of the most impactful areas for de- decarbonization, and is and is definitely set up for some element of disruption right now. Um, the the way you know the, the interesting kind of history of the U.S. and how uh, the U.S. grid system was created. Mm-hmm. Um, really comes out of regulation and, and you know, years of regulation, um, really starting in the 1800s, but call it the last hundred years. And it, it really has resulted in geographic monopolies, which I think, again, uh, tying back to economics perhaps, but it, it makes sense that that's the way it evolved. It makes sense that that's efficient. We don't need three companies putting uh, distribution lines to each one of our houses, right? And then we have, you know, that's inefficient. So, so that makes sense, but an unintended consequence of the way these utilities evolved and regulation evolved was there are lots of uh, disconnected portions of the country. So unlike oil and gas, where there's a relatively decent network of uh, pipelines across the country, um, at least, well, you know, in oil and gas, you have a shale play that develops pretty quickly a midstream company solves that bottleneck and figures mm-hmm. out how to connect it into the distribution system um, and get it to where it's going to be economic. Um, on the power side, the grid really evolved, one, with these monopolies I talked about, two, with um, centralized generation, so very large nukes, coal plants, and getting the generation from that plant to a big city. and in the way that the grid is now set up, 
that's that's less optimal and it's, it's quite inefficient. Um, and so actually y'all are talking about the heat today, you know, ERCOT, which is the um, system that uh, governs te- most like 80, 89% Texas or something, uh, is asking us all to maybe right about now, two to three o'clock today, we're supposed to turn down our air conditioning and use less energy because as many of us here in Houston know, we've been having record heat in both June and July, like, you know, literally on record. Um, but there are lots of power plants or excess generation capacity to our east, to our west, and to our north that we, we're just not able to Aren't use. Aren't running right? or we can't access. Exactly. Right. And that happens all over the country all the time. And the end result of that are really two things. We as customers pay more for power because we need, we need more capacity mm-hmm. for this little unnetworked system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, when extreme events happen, uh, we, we might have brownouts or, or blackouts, right? And so, um, yeah, so to me, I think the opportunity and what's really interesting and what could impact uh, our lives and, and um, you know, how we think about allowing people to have the energy they need in the U.S., it really, a lot of that is power in my mind right mm. now. Kind of like the way you were describing it. I think about Uber, and Uber increases the efficiency of people's cars. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're talking about an opportunity to increase efficiency. We just got to figure out how to do it. Right. So that ought to be a big – there's a big prize there. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to – we definitely need a lot of power plants, but we don't want them to only run 50% if right. they can run 70%. Yep. And, and we all are – receiving the economic benefits of that. Well, I mean, if you go, have you seen your electric bill this month and last month? I assume it was probably the highest it's been certainly in the last couple of years. And I mean, if, if it's your electric bill is hitting that high, at some point people are going to be asking for other solutions. I mean, it's it's the same at pay at the pump. The minute, the minute, the minute it starts hitting your pocketbook, you start saying, how do I fix this? Exactly. And, it's, and they are the highest ones I've ever seen. Yeah. How so, do I fix this? Yeah. Raj, one of the things that we hear a lot about when we talk about power and the way the power markets are going to change, and you mentioned it briefly, we talk about batteries. Yep. You know that, that if we're going to have less, if we're going to have more intermittent power, we got to have more batteries, or do we? I'm asking that as a yeah. question because we hear a lot about it, but I just don't know where it's going. So, yeah. how do you think about that? Yeah. So, so I actually, I think there's kind of two pieces to batteries one is what do we have today and where might batteries be you know in the, in the long term in the mm-hmm. future like t- today batteries are a great very short duration one two hour solution and they're relatively expensive however what's relatively expensive mean um the amount uh the, if, if a consumer had to constantly pay for a battery that's spread out an intermittent resource yep it would be likely prohibitively and okay. prohibitively expensive. Okay, so and if I'm I, paying twelve cents a kilowatt at my house right now, I'd be paying a dollar a kilowatt or fifty cents a kilowatt or something. Yeah, so it's going to depend on what duration. Of but course. but yeah, yeah, but but yeah, it, it so could easily be it could easily or, increase. Okay, um, and and so you can't with where we are in cost of that, you can't size a material portion of your generation to be overproducing at one point stored in a battery and then, you know, flattened out with that. It can help with small durations. Okay. Um, so, um, so I do think they have their place. Now, now the other thing about batteries today with, with days like today in ERCOT, the vol- the increased in volatility. So as, um, load versus supply as demand versus supply of power in these competitive markets have gotten 
more mismatch at certain certain short durations, uh, we have spikes and crashes in prices. And so, it, so the biz, the economic micro model of a battery, if they're they're getting better at figuring out how to take advantage of that vol, mm-hmm. uh, of that volatility, um, which uh, one of your prior guests, Sean right. Kelly, has um, some cool stuff to say Look about. Look at this. That I Trump, know he, it all comes together. He, he, I love it. Thank you for dropping that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ross is a great guest. <laughs> Um, so, so even today, though costs are high, as volatility has increased, uh, the business model of that gets better, mm-hmm. uh, assuming that they can take advantage of that. If, like any commercial hedging business, if you don't match that correctly, it can actually be on the wrong side of the vol. But um, so I think, and then longer term, we, like it, hopefully we get some better longer duration and/or cheaper batteries, and whether that's something like a solid state thing or a large long duration contraption that's for utility scale you know generation that could take up a lot of land space perhaps either of those i think would be hugely beneficial um i don't believe that's something that you could plan into your grid today and i'm not up to date on all of these technologies um but you know if you were a utility i don't know that you could easily have your customers lights depend on in year eight, one of those coming mm-hmm. online, right? And and I now it's possible if in five years we're talking, that will be different. We'll know that eight years from then, you know, there might be some technology that'll come online that is just getting built in a factory somewhere. But um, so so I think uh, I think batteries are helpful and they're going to continue to improve. And on certain technologies um, like solar, for example. Um, where you get re- these really big peaks in uh, production, they're really good in shaving that production peak and spreading it to perhaps a point of the day that the grid really wants that power and pays mm-hmm. you a lot for it. Um, but we're going to have to go a lot beyond that. And so, you know, one one of the things that I think is interesting is um, transmission could take that solar uh, rather than trying to inefficiently store it because you lose about twenty percent storing it and. Um, you know, dispatch it immediately to where it could be used at that moment in time. And so what, one of the things that I've thought about is it seems like transmission is probably the cheapest storage. Um, moving it moving it to current demand as at opposed that time. to yeah. time-shifting it to demand some other Exactly. Time. So, you know, when the sun's shining in California, Chicago might love that solar, but you have, in California, you have I don't, you might have had people talk about the duck curve, but mm-hmm. you know, basically when the sun shines, the power prices are really low because there's a lot of solar built. And it's not all during peak demand, but if you can shift that you know, further east somewhere, that could be used immediately. And that'd be great for California and that'd be great for Chicago, um, or even if you got it further, further east. Um, and similar with wind in the Midwest. So if, you can, if we're able to, as a society, get power when it's produced, to where it's needed, um, that should be by far the cheapest "quote unquote" battery or uh-huh. form of, of making that efficient. Uh-huh. Well, we'll have you back on in a year or two and talk about transmission versus batteries versus all the things that have changed in the last eighteen. To I want to just hear you say the word "time shift" again. This I know, is, didn't that, that sound was impressive? Yeah, I felt it was very quick. I felt very smart <laughs> yeah. that, for, for that one moment in time. So yeah, felt, unfortunately, like the hi- hydrocarbons we could store, right? It's just the the hard reality of electrons. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we got to come up with new words. I know, so. <laughs> I, I know, and, and I'm I'm trying them out. I try them out on the podcast. It's pretty strong. And <laughs> it doesn't work natural. at home. I, I I talk about time shifting at home. And yes. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, well, Raj, what about so take us back to Riverstone. So yep. you've been an investor, oil and gas, as well as as different energy transition areas. So um, do you think that? all of our traditional oil and gas investors are going to become, you know, we call it energy. Are they going to shift from traditional energy to energy transition? You were doing some of that at, at Riverstone. What's, what do you think, you know, they're going to have to do that to stay relevant? It's a really good question. And, and actually, you're, you're ha- you probably have a better view here. But to me, the real question to me is, we talked about capital formation on I, I was talking about it earlier as all energy, just mm-hmm. combining it all together. Right. But now if we slice just hydrocarbons or oil and gas, I guess the question is, is capital formation still there and at scale? And, and you know, for for private equity, it's, it's clear that there's been a pullback. Um, now oil prices were half of what they were now when that happened, even mm-hmm. after the recent fall. So the question is, do investors want to come back in at scale um, now that most most assets are profitable on an asset level, mm-hmm. um, that's a hard question. Um, my gut is it comes back a little bit, but not to the extent that it was from a capital perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think I think what that means is there's a uh, shrinking of the amount of capital going in. So perhaps to some traditional to traditional energy, mm-hmm. um, and I think those that stay in it, frankly, have a less competitive environment. So it might actually benefit some of the um, incumbent players in the space, Uh, particularly they have the relationships with the capital providers, with the management teams, they understand the industry, and none of those are easy to recreate overnight anyway. Um, And and so I think for some of those guys, it could actually be a pretty interesting next 10 plus years. Um, But that probably also means there's not space for every single one of those people that used to be there and the cycle that they were bringing people in at is probably not at the pace that it was at all, is my guess. And I think that probably, that continues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think from a people perspective, it definitely wouldn't grow like it was and, and you know perhaps it might become a smaller industry. Uh, but again, I think some of those folks will do really well in, mm-hmm. that, in that industry. Smaller, po- nichier, potentially more, better returns. Yeah, yeah. Still powerful. I mean, it, that's a good description of how you just described it. There are fewer people. There's still a lot of money there. A lot of people are. They, they feel very strong. I'm, I'm one of them. I mean, at a hundred dollars a barrel, 120 especially, it's it's a good place to be. But at the same time, it definitely feels different, and yeah. it doesn't feel like it's coming back the same way. It hasn't for years, really. Right. That's why I was asking about that 2015 to 21. Yeah. Yeah. Shift. That was almost a a drawn out time frame of what you're describing of now where we are and what does that look like so i think your description is is spot on the people that are there love being there they don't want to go anywhere they like they like having those relationships and it's it is interesting to see because they're not they do need to be there right i mean it is a needed area for power generation for energy so right um that's one of the things that dan and i talked about on this podcast is those players are I want those people to listen to this podcast and realize that that the worlds exist together, that you're going to need to pay attention to that at the exact same time. 
make sure you're paying attention to the energy and transition the, or the energy transition, I should say, however you want to say it. Um, so now I think your description is spot on. What do you think is the sweet spot in energy transition investing right now? Is it venture? Is it, is it infrastructure? Is it growth equity? What's the, what's the right spot? Yeah, I, I think there's probably good opportunities in each of those and probably a lot of scary holes in each of those. But I, I, I really like a, a strategy, like if, if one could pick yeah. any part of all those buckets, yes, exactly. I, I, I really like having a seed or a really early stage strategy because if one has a good network to leverage, um, I think there's always a short of really good management teams. Mm -hmm. And so to be able, if, if one is able to tap that, that network and be in touch with those management teams, I mean, that that's incredible, right? And, and then you're gonna be able to leverage the capital formation that finally has occurred later in the, in the stage of, of a company. So get involved early, find a great team. If, if you, you can find good, good teams, team, yeah. You wanna stick with them and right. ride that pony though. Right, exactly. Race. And then I think growth equity is interesting, but one has to be really careful because there's been a lot of capital that's become a crowded, more crowded space. Um, you know, there, there were there were no real funds in this space 10 years ago, which you kind of talked about. Um, you know, now I, I, we could probably name 100 and we'd be missing a lot of them, right? And, and so they're all competing for deals. Um, and so I think that's where if you if you don't, if you have patience, I think that's a great place to be. If you just got to get the capital out, I think it's a pretty scary place to be. Mm -hmm. um, and even there though, like my one simple theme on investing is just the team, the team, the team. Um, even there, it's, if, if you're able to get with a good, good management team, just, just hold on to it, you know, and that th those are almost impossible to replace. Um, They'll be it, it, yeah. at, at the stage where their growth equity, they've got revenues, they're trying to expand. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're, I mean, if you're going to put, or if we're saying growth equity, if you're going to put making it up a hundred or $200 million check into something, uh, that the deployment of that is really that team mm -hmm. and what they're able to build around, what infrastructure they're able to build around uh, that capital. Um, and so, I think it's really important to have the right team. I, I think in energy, in all sectors, sometimes we say all, all you need is the right location if it's wind or solar or the right rock and oil and gas. But I, I would position, sometimes you can get bailed out by the right location, but it's really important to find the right team because they're actually most likely to get you in the light, right location. Mm -hmm. You can sell assets and pivot and move around and diversify and create hard asset options, but it's that team that's going to do that. Um, so even on the growth equity side, I, I totally agree with that. And then I, I, I love the infrastructure play. So, um, you know, you're going to have theoretically lower returns. You're not going to have, you know, 40, 50% returns typically. But I think if you, if one is able to innovatively create new in infrastructure asset classes, um, which I do think will happen over the next 15 years, I do think that there will be outsized returns. Um, outsized returns, meaning a typical infrastructure investment might make 8% or 10% unlevered and right. it could be twice that? I think it could be twice that, okay. but, but there will be risk, right? This means someone has to be in the business of thinking through what is the new contracting model for an asset class? Mm -hmm. um, who's on, who's paying what type of contractual payment, how, how is that structured? 
what are the risks that get each side out of that? What are the obligations? And once that gets figured out, yeah, I think it's 8% or less return, right? And that, but the, the, the person creating that business model, and frankly, if that person or that firm can lock up a lot of that market, so get a lot of the market share out there, I think someone can create a pretty large business, maybe you have high teen returning assets, and you sell that to the person who only might need half that. And that, that is a, I think that's a wonderful business model. Um, I think it's rare to find folks that um, have the infrastructure hat with the risk on hat, right? So, so it takes people who might have helped create LNG business models or early wind and solar models or biomass models. And there aren't that many people who created the first handful of each of those. Um, but I think that's the type of DNA where you have a risk on mindset with the understanding of how to create this contracted business model um, as these new asset classes get created. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to me, I think that's a really fascinating uh, area. I think it will attract sizable capital because it's a big asset class in terms of dollars at work. Um, so so if, I w if I was an investment fund, that would be, I'd, right. I would love to figure out how to scale up to tackle that. Yeah, what, what, I'm, what I'm taking away from this, Josh, is if I'm the, and maybe the question, Raj, is do you think any of those companies are gonna wind up being public companies so you can identify, it's like ah, a good team kind of exploiting this new contracting model or new payment structure model, because you know somebody's gonna sweep in and buy them later for you know basically much lower cost to capital type of, of returns. Um, do you think there are gonna be any publics there? Yeah, I, th I think there absolutely could. I mean, um, if someone created these types of assets and they chose to hold them yep. and actually just operate them, you have a huge cash flowing business with visibility. Um, so, so that could easily be public. Yeah. Um, or, or I think about a lot of MLPs, Yolkos, things things that trade on cash flow per percent. Mm -hmm. um, they can either sell down or drop down to themselves or sell to someone else. Okay. So, so, so I, a development co and a hold co, yeah, sort of structure. Exactly, yeah. So, so I, I think, I think these what I'll call cutting edge infra companies. Yep. I think they can either choose to stay private uh, or choose to hold on and yep. become a relatively large uh, public company. We have any? Do we have any cutting edge infrastructure companies? Infra, infra, yeah, cutting infra, edge infra. yeah. <laughs> Time shift, time infra, shift. <laughs> uh, intermittent, intermittency. Uh, um. uh, so, so I think you know it's interesting. I think there's a lot of com there are a lot of companies out there that are starting. I think the SPAT craze got some stuff public. Um, in my view, on on, on average, perhaps earlier than uh, my the, earlier before they were able to de-risk and mm -hmm. explain their business model because they yep. might still largely be um, developing it themselves. Yep. Um, but I think, you know, whether, I mean, I think a lot of those have really good foundations yep. and might work uh, commercially as some yep. of these, a lot of these don't even have tech risk, right? But, um, you know, I, so I think we've seen- are these, I mean, are these the stems and the fluences and the those kinds of companies? Am yeah, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, and that's kind of, those are more battery oriented, yep. um, like, you know, STEM will help manage and Fluence will help build batteries and they're both doing both. But um, I think that's right. And I think what 
they are defining broadly is what does that revenue model look like? So mm -hmm. how much revenue should an investor expect to see and um, what's the growth of the projects that they would yep. you know, be involved with? Um, exactly, there's stuff like that. I think uh, things like RNG, there's some stuff mm -hmm. that's become public. Renewable um, natural gas. Renewable yeah. natural gas and they look at um, various stackable credits and other ways in which their business model might work. And, um, you know, so I think there's, uh, you know, there's indoor farming, there's mm -hmm. um, energy efficiency for buildings, for CNI commercial and industrial. Um, so I think these are largely examples of things where there shouldn't really be technology risk, but it's more what is the market willing to pay for this type of a big project or yeah. service that I'm providing? And can I contract that and and like really capture a lot of revenue and profit around mm -hmm. that? Yeah, um, scale it up. Fast, scale it up, yeah. yeah. So, so I, yeah, so I think you know, I think being able to figure out how to efficiently create those multiple ways mm -hmm. <laughs> over time uh, is really valuable, but that that's not easy to do. You know, again, I think this energy transition, it takes decades and building the right business models and companies takes, you know, years within that um, at the beginning. So we, so it is worth our time to sift through sort of the wreckage of the SPACs where everything went 10 to 40 and is now trading at four watch these business models because some of them are actually real business models that maybe were just public before their time. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, if, uh, if, if I, I, th I think funds that have flexibility in how they spend capital should study a lot of these, I don't want to call them distress, a lot of publicly traded companies, whether they were despacked or other IPO'd mm -hmm. that have traded down. Um, Cause you know, I'm not like no names on a company, but if, Perhaps if it was unclear if it was worth ten, maybe it's worth three. Yeah. Maybe it's worth two. And yep. um, at some price, maybe you know, maybe that's a business model someone wants to see if they can make work. Mm -hmm. Can we um, can we shift gears a little bit? Yeah. Digging back in your past, I know you were you were on the board of Talos. We had Robin Fielder on the podcast talking to us about carbon capture. Um, give us two minutes on carbon capture and how you think that's going to play out um, over the, you know, the next five or 10 years in the U.S. He listened yeah. to the Robin podcast too, by the way. He's, he's done his homework on us. Yeah, listen to that on the way here. Robin's great and that's awesome y'all <laughs> had her on. That's, that's uh, really cool. Um, so so kind of going back to scale and economics. So what, what I find fascinating about, you know, really what Talos is doing and, and um, you know, in the space is they're really looking at, looking at huge projects, right? And, and it's kind of funny because I think, you know, maybe a huge project in carbon capture is 250 million tons of storage capacity over its lifetime. And, you know, we do 50 billion a year as a, as a, as a globe, but, um, but that's- I think, I think that's, a, that's an important point, which is these projects, which cost a lot of money, are small relative to the size of the market, right? Where right. if it works, it's not going to be one. It's going to be hundreds. It's going to be hundreds, yeah. Yep. And, and by the way, though, just to further put that in context, I mean, I think Tesla will say they abated 5 million tons in 2020 and not even going into the accounting of that. Like, you know, it, it's not easy to abate 5 million tons. I, but, and I think that's probably a couple of coal plants worth just for perspective. But, you know, if you can put 200 million over, over a whole project lifetime, but, you know, that's that's a lot. But then you compare it to the actual global scale of what we have to do, and it looks looks like nothing. Mm -hmm. So so it depends which way you're looking at it from. 
Um, but but in the context of what we can do, um, we we do emit a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it's expensive to figure out what to do with that. Um, so you know, as uh, you, uh, this might be, to, if we can take tier one emissions, which means really high concentrate CO two, relatively low pollutants in it, so basically cheap to get to to uh-huh. gather it. Yep, it's possible that's economic to put underground at scale um, in some of these really large projects. Uh-huh. Um, and that's kind of this hub and spoke model where you have this hub of a huge uh, sequestration facility and you go to all these huge industrial emitters on the Gulf Coast or Mississippi uh, Delta and you you connect them in um, and hopefully there's efficiencies with scale um, and you know with the 45 Q tax credit um, you know what a lot of folks are doing is saying I'm going after the lowest hanging fruit which which should work at that that price point mm-hmm. uh, and you split that between yourself and the um, industrial company um so so I think what they're doing is super innovative um and and you know I think uh Tim Duncan has shown a whole lot of leadership uh for Talos on getting them to be a, a real leader in that space and it's not easy I think a lot of people are trying to do it um but I think it's just awesome that they have they have a portfolio of real credible top projects with real credible partners uh, and that's pretty fascinating that they've been able to build that uh, in the amount of time that they have. And it's probably what it takes early on, right? Is you're going to have to have these partnerships because um, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. You're going to have to have a, uh, somebody that wants to work with you and believes you're a credible source of of storage, so that they can risk giving you their, you know, their uh, emittance volumes, if you will. So. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it, I think it takes. I don't think it's you know it's for an oil and gas company to really do that, and, and for a non-Exxon oil and gas company to do that. I think it takes a lot of foresight. And I, I used to joke with Tim like, I thought you were a great CEO, but you're not. Uh, you're just a great entrepreneur generally. You know, and he, he's been able to innovate in offshore oil and gas and the types of uh, fi- oil finds they've had. Um, he was able to innovate in um, a, a Mexican lease. You know, he's innovating here, so it's been cool, cool, really cool to be able to watch what he's mm-hmm. built there. And um, I, I think that's an example of where that might be a roadmap of where they create something that other folks later a different business model, right? Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. But and and just for clarity, you are no longer on the board of Talos. No correct? longer on the board okay. of Talos. So, that's right. But all yeah. good though. Yeah. Oh yeah, love yeah. those guys. Yeah. Okay. Where do we want to go next, Josh? Well, I'm going to, you know, I, I actually am glad you, you jumped back. There's one thing he keeps going back to over and over, and it's the management team. And there's, you have a question there. About, have you noticed how organized Dan is? Mine, yeah. He's just fantastic. I'm not, I'm not as organized. But I'm interested in a bunch of these, these questions. And one of the things that I wanted to – I'm glad we've, we're going to talk about is the management teams that you seem to think are the most, which I do too, the most important part of it, right? And you say if you can find a good one early on, is there, it, it almost sounds like Silver Lake is when you noticed how important a good management team is. Is that when you really noticed that uh, to have the right people in charge of a project is really important? 
Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I've never thought about it, but yeah, actually now that I reflect on it, I think that's right. Because uh, when I was doing the real estate stuff, that really was more structured finance. Um, and so at Silver Lake, we, I mean, in growth equity, you, you can meet multiple management teams a day. And uh, th that's right. I mean, that's really what we were betting on. And, um, you know, reflecting back, you know, some of the, the a lot of the most influential decisions were around management team. And, um, you know, at that time, I had invested in uh, the firm's first investment was Solar City, which um, uh, Elon Musk was the chairman of and his, co uh, you know, it, other folks in his family were the founders of, but um, it, it really was having the tenacity to get through really difficult markets. And then by the way, that was a time where solar manufacturers were down 90% because of what was going on in China with overproduction. But um, yeah, I think that's right. Management teams are, you, 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 you can't, you know, I, I once had a mentor say, when you find the right one, you just figure out how to build something around them. Mm -hmm. what, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever they want it, you know. Well, because that, that kind of leads to one of these, this next questions is what is your advice to entrepreneurs on how to build a business? Is that, would you almost start with that? Yeah, I would say, uh, well, so, so there's a couple of things. Like one, I would partner with people a lot smarter and more capable than yourself. And that's what I always try to do. Um, and really build that skill set, right? Like as a partnership. Um, Two, I think, uh, no, like, I think one needs to be really thoughtful about what they're trying to solve, right? So yeah, you and I can make up what we think the market needs, um, but really if we partnered with someone who's been in the market for 30 years, whatever thing we're starting, and they know exactly what the market's been asking for, and we, we go build it, um, you know, th there's no better kind of way to know what's the, what's the right direction, right? So I think a lot of times, particularly in these new spaces, people are coming out of industries into newer industries, but those industries have been around. You know, I think it's really important to have that in insight from customers directly or people who have been in it. Um, so I think that subject matter expertise is incredibly important. Um, Raj, have you yeah. ever, has there ever been a management team that you met that you wound up loving that you thought was a dud when you first met them? In other words, is it is it sort of love at first sight or do people grow on you as you sort of meet them for the second and third time? Yeah, for me, it's uh, grow over time. Like, okay. I, I don't know that I can see it straight away. Uh, I, um, I don't think I have that skill set, but um, I probably first try to figure out if I like the thesis and if this even makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of typically what you talk to a team about. Um, I think it's probably over further meetings where you dig into how realistic are they about what the challenges really are and thus that they are planning to just demolish those challenges. You know, And, and so I think those for me tend to be in later interactions. I, I typically don't even know what those challenges might be earlier on. and. Um, you know, I, I think, I will say, I think good management teams or teams that I've found to be uh, successful really focus on those and how they're going to go through it, not on just the overall broader opportunity. So I think it's, um, but yeah, so for me, it's probably not love at first sight, but uh, love over a few mm -hmm. interactions. Mm -hmm. and, and what do you do 
when somebody that you've really grown to respect fails? Yeah, um, so it depends on what seat I'm in at the time, but look, things don't always work out. Um, and so uh, if, if it failed because we all together agreed on a strategy and it was executed in a way that was super high quality, um, I think you've, I think it's possible that might even be someone I would want to partner with some way. Reload again because they're, they just made a bad call and, but executed well. Right. But if it's someone, if it was something where there was constantly, uh, known or potentially known things that just weren't known or weren't addressed correctly or consistently making the wrong calls, you know, then I think like I, I, everyone's, I, this stuff is hard. We can't all predict the future. We're all doing new things. Um, but there might be situations where you might not want to partner with someone again. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a great way to say it, that we agreed on the strategy and it was done in a high quality, it was executed in a high quality way. That That's really what you're looking for. Yeah, and I think, you know, if I think, because this world changes and as right. we talked about the roller coaster, I mean, I think good management teams, they come, they, they come up to their investors and they say, hey, look, this happened, it might, it might just be oil prices or it might be power prices or it might be a regulatory event. This happened, we need to do this, this, and this because there's this huge risk we have. And they're constantly iterating on their business model and de-risking it and challenging it and challenging themselves and their people. You know? And I think, I think it's really that iteration that keeps you from getting stuck. Because you know, this roller coaster, if you just, if you just keep make the same decision and keep going, it's very likely you're going to run out of fuel. So I'm, I'm a small business owner. And I, when I think of the word entrepreneur, I think of it's, it's more, um, you know, I'm going to jump and I'm pretty sure I'm going to land on something. That's, that's my mentality. I can yep. figure this out. Yep. But the dollars you're talking about, there's not a lot of freedom to do that. I wouldn't think, right? But you mentioned the, the Talos guy. You're not just a good CEO. You're a good entrepreneur. How much of that... Um, so what I'm looking for, just like the free movement yeah. ability takes, like, do, would you allow, again, I'm not even sure that's the right word, is acceptable and still be considered high quality execution? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really about articulating what capital is used for what. So if, if you're talking about a business that uh, has raised a, a decent amount of capital for a particular uh, low risk execution, that's what that capital should go for. If you're talking about a business that has a more diversified set of activities and maybe some uh, flexibility on its balance sheet, as long as folks articulate, hey, we're gonna spend 5% or what, you know, of our budget this year to do these three things, and here's why. We wanna put a couple full time on this, we wanna maybe buy this thing, and here's why. It could help this over here, it could lead to this. It's measured risk, and it it's probably you know a lot of these things, and I think this is why the actually the incumbent ener- energy industry has a huge opportunity. A lot of those little side pockets in the grand scheme of venture and growth equity are huge. So within some of these bigger businesses, if you can articulate a growth strategy outside of the business, I, outside of the core business, I have been very open to that. Not, not a lot of investors won't be, and again, it depends on how well the current business is doing, what's the, what are the LPs who invested in that fund thinking their capital is doing. Um, but 
you know, again, a good management team, who's, who's better to know what businesses should tack on to an oil business than someone who is managing an oil business and sees the opportunities or a, you know, a wind farm, uh, right? And so I think there's an insight that a lot of these businesses have uh, where if they have the flexibility, they can tap it. Um, and so, so my, my preference has been as long as it's articulated um, and we understand how much of the capital and can we survive that, you know, that's a great way to do it. Yeah. There's, a, <clears throat> there's a line in uh, the movie, Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot, that I love, and one of the best scenes in any movie ever. Um, but Mel Gibson tells his son, aim small, miss small, right? So if you know the capital and the risks that you're taking and, and size that appropriately, then then you wind up winning. Um, so let's let's shift a little bit and as we kind of get to the back end of the the podcast here. So you're a hard charging private equity entrepreneur, CFO, finance guy. You mentioned briefly your wife, a doctor. I think she's a surgeon, right? Here yep. in town. Um, you've got a couple kids. Yep. How does how do you do all that? What's the? <laughs> you gave us some advice on being an entrepreneur. How about some advice on? Yeah, something being, we can actually use. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a good how question. Do you do that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I need. I, I think I'm the one who should be asking for advice here. Um, um, well, one, one, I think get lucky and and you know choose choose the right partner. Mary, Mary, right. That's a, um, that's a good one. Um, Look, I, so so one, I would say we probably, my wife and I, yeah, she, she's a surgeon here in, in Houston. I mean, we probably both feel like we're off the rails a lot. And um, yeah, I, I think one is, frankly, just having to sacrifice a lot of what we would each want to do on a, perhaps on a daily basis and sometimes on a longer term basis. But uh, one, we're super lucky. So we, we have both my parents and her parents mm. live here in Houston. Uh, help us on a daily basis with our awesome kids um, and you know even with them being in school all day five days a week and we sometimes have a nanny like having grandparents who can daily pick up or help out when someone's always sick I mean that's <laughs> move where the family is yeah, that's that's, nice. yeah. yeah so like yeah I know that a lot of people don't have that luxury that's like, a nice luxury yes. super super lucky um, so I, you know, I think that's, that's probably the main thing. Um, you know, I think work from home, has that been something that's worked for you? Um, so, uh, so we're a very, we're a relative, currently a relatively in person culture. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, I think historically in the beginning of the pandemic, it was probably helpful, but frankly, like if the kids were home, it was harder. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I, I'm not harder a, professionally or professionally. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I mean, depends on the age of the kids, I'm sure, but I, I don't think I cannot work from home and take care of the kids at the same time. I've got to do one or the other, <laughs> but, um, so, I, so I think for me, it wasn't really beneficial. Um, but, um, maybe may, gave me an extra 30 minutes a day or so. But, okay. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the other thing, like, uh, over time, I think each person has to, sometimes has to make sacrifices and think about what's best. And, uh, you know, we've, we've both done that for each other and, uh, in the long run, probably been good for both of our careers anyway, like it's hard to make decisions, but, you know, we've moved cities based on one person's career or the other. And, um, 
made other decisions based on what's going on. And then, you know, I, I think we all have to do that as my, or at least I, I have to do that, but um, probably ended up lucking out in a lot of ways anyway with some of those decisions. Hmm. At the beginning of the pandemic, I turned our living room into a classroom. I ordered desks nice. and didn't, didn't tell my wife. I thought I was being nice. And I had this, I mean, full desk set up and a chalkboard and all the stuff. Wow. And it, and it, I set it up and she came in and she looked at it and she's like, what in the hell is this? Like, <laughs> she's like, what do you think I'm going to do? <laughs> I was like, it's a classroom. And she's like, what do you, what do you think is going to happen here, Josh? <laughs> and I thought I was doing something great. It was, it didn't go over as nice as I thought it was going to go over. So we had a beautiful classroom for about three days. And, oh, man. Yeah. So, so the desk didn't stay. Yeah, it didn't, didn't oh. get used. The desks are now in Josh's office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I want to I, I wanna understand how you think about this Russia-Ukraine situation, but yeah. I want to also be cognizant of time, and so I'm going to work it into the lightning round okay. Okay. toward the end. Uh, Josh, if you don't mind. Nothing like a complex issue in one yes. word or less. <laughs> yes, I'm going to give you like a sentence or two. So... Raj, the way these lightning rounds work is you don't get to you don't get to do anything but say yes or no or an answer one way or the other. So sing kind of single word, short answers only. So um, we'll hit with a few and, and got I some will good ones here today. Finish. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We, we got some we got some great ones. And so I'll start. One word answers, short answers. Whataburger or In N Out Burger? Whataburger. Cash or crypto? Cash. You've lived close to both. NYC or Palo Alto? NYC. Okay. Rice baseball or Houston Astros? Houston Astros. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uber or Lyft? Lyft. Oh, man. Will the world make net zero by 2050? No, but close. Mm. My favorite, puppies or kittens? Puppies. Goldfish or iguanas? Ooh. Goldfish. S and P five hundred for the rest of twenty twenty two. Are you bullish or bearish? Bearish. Wind or solar? Wind. Alphabet soup, NFTs or ETFs? ETFs. Will electric vehicle adoption be slowed by the lack of battery metals or other raw materials? Both an answer. It is today. <laughs> Shawshank Redemption or The Godfather? Shawshank. Did we? I mean, that's a great movie. Real quick, we saw James Conn died over yeah. the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Sonny. The Godfather. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, okay. So the the Russia Ukraine. Okay. The question would be: Will Russia? strategically or tactically shut off either gas or oil um, to advance their agenda sometime this winter? And you can you, you get a paragraph, not a, a yes or a no. If I was Russia, I would not, because I think history has shown all that would do is accelerate Europe's transition away from Russian gas. Um, yeah, they can cause some. They can cause a lot of pain. Um, now, I don't know how much rationality necessarily goes into the decision. So maybe the ability to cause a lot of pain yeah. is is of value to perhaps someone making that decision there. 
Um, so the, yeah. then the short answer becomes they will or they won't. Oof. They're, they're already doing it. They're going to do it more. It's a okay. pattern. What do you think, Josh? I don't think they will. Okay. I actually think they, they probably will. Really? Um, like, like completely? Well, not, not all the way off, but I think yeah. there's, I think there's, there is a risk that they turn up the heat on the world when they can. And the best chance to do that is going to be. Well, and he weekend. said something about rational yeah. thought and you want to think rationally, but there's a lot of un- irrational thought going on right yeah. now. Yeah. And you get to ask wow. the last No, I, this is my favorite. You have to ask this. I, the pain on Dan's face on this question yes. is usually my favorite part yes. of the whole Speaking po- of rationality <laughs> or irrationality, will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I think that's just That might be the first nice, one. It's a nice <laughs> I think that might be the first one. Yes. You know, I, real quick, I, this is not one we've done here, at, but this has been great. This was we've gone a lot longer than I thought we were going to go here too. Your first podcast. Um, you're you're a young guy. Is there anything that you would tell uh, your younger self that is a piece of advice you would give a a ten or twenty year ago Raj advice that somebody listening might uh, because you've had a bunch of different experiences. Is there anything you would throw out there that somebody might a little tidbit they might hang on to? Yeah, it's a, uh, I, sh- I should think about this for like a year or something and come back to you. But um, I think find awesome people. If I'm talking to myself 10, 15 years ago, whatever, um, awesome people to find as ethically, morally, the best at what they do professionally and just partner with them and learn from them and, and build cool stuff. Like have an adventure, you know, like I don't know, for, for me, it's about have fun and build stuff that matters. Um, and, and if you can partner with people that can do that with you, hopefully life is fun at least. You exude that. Did you say your parents moved here from India? Did uh, did they? Is that a lesson that they taught you on a daily basis? I mean, where did where did you pick that up? Um, no, I think I'm spoiled because of what they did. You know, so so they uh, you know they both had multi-decade-long careers um, at major oil companies, um, and you know, worked really diligently for their, you know, their working lives or they're helping us now with the kids and happily retired. But, um, you know, honestly, I think I learned it just by looking around and seeing what all could be built if we kind of didn't have such a, you know, such an immigrant restrictive framework on how one's job or a career should go. Uh, But honestly, I think I'm, it's a luxury to have that perspective. And it's probably because they, did what they did. They got out of a country that, you know, at the time didn't have the opportunities they wanted. They set up here with nothing, built something. And now I'm able to kind of say, oh, this seems interesting. Let's try this out, you know. But my advice would be do it earlier. You yeah. Know? Like we have decades to learn and figure stuff out. Well, I mean, Dan, you're killing the guests. This is great. Another just home run. Awesome. You really, you exude the excellence dan has hit a home run with the guest today is there anything you want to wrap up do we need to tell anybody anything before we i don't think so other than <clears throat> i loved your comment about having an adventure you know yeah. that that's a good i think that's a really you know figure out things that you love be associated with people that are good 
yep. and have an adventure. I like it. Is there any um, website or LinkedIn that we should direct people to for more information of anything you want to tell them to, to head? Like I know Dan has the Twitter account is Pickering Energy. At, at Pickering Energy. At yep. Pickering Energy. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you'd want us to send people towards? Uh, not, not right now. Okay, fair yeah, enough. Thank you, though. Um, well, Dan, I'm going to wrap us up if there's nothing left. That'll see. I told you it's the hardest part. Looking the camera and going, going full on. Thank you very much for joining us on the Energy and Transition podcast. You can find us on all the social media and LinkedIn channels. We are on all the major podcast platforms. If you have any questions? Uh, email us at uprightdigital.com or at sarah at uprightdigital.com. Uh, thank you very much, Dan. Great podcast, yeah. Rosh, Rosh. Thank you for your time. Thanks for being thank here, you guys. A lot of yeah, fun. It was great. Great.